0: Welcome, everyone, to How Winners Win. I am Daniel Blue. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Keita Spears, a.k.a. High Key. What up, Winners? Kita, how you doing today?
1: I'm, I'm living the dream, man. I can't complain. I got some good sleep last night. People are answering the phones. I, I can't complain.
0: Yeah, and, and you had some plumbing issues that you got <laughs> resolved, didn't you?
1: Yeah, thankfully, I have a buddy that I played football with in high school. He now owns his own plumbing company. And he was out of town, but he sent me his his buddy and yep, 60, 70 bucks, you know, all my, all my shit problems went right down the drain. (laughs)
0: Dude, we had a, a guest on the show. Remember Thomas, a client of ours and his his company's what a restoration company mm-hmm. and he literally has to go to houses that just plug up their toilets with just nasty shit and just goes in and, and cleans it
1: like, ankle deep type shit yeah. Yeah, so Oof. that was it wasn't that bad but Oof. you know it could have been that bad had i procrastinated or you know wasn't aware of my my situation yep,
0: yep. so winners we're not here to talk about shit sure. um, <laughs> well with if the, we the guess we got we might
2: uh shit is humor yeah we
0: uh, we might go down that uh that rabbit hole. So I'm, I'm really excited guys for the guests that we have here today. His name is Tony Watley, and cool story, fun fact: I was actually on his show. We were just talking about off air September of 2018, and it was actually my very, very first podcast that I was on. I no way I would ever want to listen to that podcast. How I nervous fucking, were you, dude? I was so nervous, dude. Like I was just, it was bad, super, super <laughs> bad. But I'm really grateful for you know, Tony's wisdom and and the opportunity, and he's just shared a lot, a lot of knowledge, and has been a big part of my growth over the years. So Tony Watley's. Uh, got over 250 episodes on his show, 365 Driven. So he's a, a gangster in the podcast space, got a, a very successful coaching business. And one thing I really respect about Tony is he walks the walk. He's built businesses, exited seven figure businesses. So he's not, what do you call that? Keita? Furu? The furu. Yeah. Have the fake, fake gurus. The, yeah. <laughs> Tony is not a Furu. So Tony Wally, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, hashtag no Furu. <laughs> I like it. Hell yeah, man. (laughs) Honored to be here, man. And honestly, you did not do bad on that first episode. (laughs) I actually thought you did really well because you told me before, like, this is my very first interview ever. Yeah. And you did it well, dude. You came up with the confidence, but I think it's because you also know your subject very well and you have that confidence.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And we're always critical of ourselves. Extra. Yeah.
2: Extra critical.
0: And uh, being able to do what you do. One thing I I really love about you Tony is and I just so you guys know I, I always call Tony Yoda cuz he's just always has the 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 wisdom and a lot of knowledge to share. So like did you always come from a perspective of just like kind of being the intellectual one in your circle like the one that kind of just always spit fire was that always who Tony was from you know a kid?
2: Yeah, I think so. I've always been fascinated with learning and reading and just studying things and I'm one of those kind of personalities that when I get interested in something, I almost become obsessive compulsive and like go all in and just try to be the best I can. I'm not trying to always be the best of the best of the best because I know that that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. But I also know that I have a certain level of intellect and abilities and skills and passion and consistency and things like that that can create success. So I'm actually pretty happy when I get to a level that I perceive that's good for me. And I'm not trying to compete with everybody and all these crazy things that we hear nowadays. It's just I want to be the best I can be, right? And so you do this with your hobbies and the things that you're interested in. And you just kind of go into these dark rabbit holes of just following, you know, learning from the best and studying and practicing, do the reps. And, you know, I'll look back over my 49 years of life. I'll be 50 you know, in a couple of months, but nice. it's it's a it's a pattern that's re- repeated over and over and over in just all different su- you know, subjects that I've gotten into,
0: and it started really at a young age, right? I remember you talking about working your way through school, you know, bussing tables, multiple jobs, right? Like just really putting in the work. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's no easy way to the success thing. I think too many people are always looking for that nine ninety seven course that's going to answer all their <laughs> dreams and make them overnight millionaire and you guys know this. It's it's showing up and being consistent on a daily basis and really being rooted in the fundamentals of business because I think too many people are always looking for the, the quick fix, the shortcut, all these things. But guys, there's a reason fundamentals are what they are. And if you can just be excellent at fundamentals and learning the skills that you need to, to gain the success and the opportunities, those opportunities are going to come your way. It's inevitable. It's just it, it's. I see some people just skip the fundamentals. Like, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I heard that so many times. But they don't do it, you know.
1: That's so true. So, like, were you always – I mean, like, I want to go back to the very, very beginning. Because – the upbringing to me always is very indicative of how things go in the beginning, but ultimately you get to decide where you, where you end oh. up at. So did you come from money? Did you come from a place when you were growing up where, you know, you were comfortable all the time or did you come from a place of scarcity? Like a lot of us, man, I'm a long line of billionaires,
2: <laughs> <in my family. laughs> Rockefeller, Tony Rockefeller. Yeah, man, you guys just don't even know all the, the legacy money that I come from. <laughs> no, I my dad was actually the first one in his family to live in a house that didn't have wheels attached to it. And that was after he got out of the Marine Corps. He's a Vietnam combat vet and my mom's a Japanese immigrant. So they met when he was stationed in Japan. I was actually born in Japan and I came to lived in a year in California. And then we moved to Texas where I've been in Houston my entire life. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't have anything money wise. And the funny thing is, is like the, the three houses that I grew up in were all in the same neighborhood but they're basically like the crappiest house on the street that we could live in. Like we lived in a little, you know, thousand square foot home, then you know, a 1500 square foot home and then a 2100 square foot home. And the thing is like each of these houses would be considered a flip home nowadays, <laughs> but I didn't know that. I just, mm-hmm. it was a house. Like we would move in and there'd be shit ass, you know, shag carpet and purple walls and crappy cabinets. And over the course of a couple of years, like the four of us, my family my sister, my parents, we would restore the house. And I just thought that was normal. I just grew up that way. My mom worked in the public school cafeterias her entire career, so 30-plus years as a cafeteria worker. My dad worked in the chemical refineries when he got out of the military, started out labor, eventually got into management of those things. So I saw the the blue-collar hard root work, and I waited tables, like you said, and I was a mechanic, and I taught myself how to do photography. I taught myself how to code and build websites. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at all these different skills that I could monetize because I was broke and I was always trying to figure out how to do extra work to make side money. So I always had a job and always like building these little businesses or having these hobbies that would pay me. And you know, so I understood the, the value of hard work, watching my parents really struggle. We had everything we needed, but not a lot of things we wanted, you know. And mm-hmm. even to this day, I still find these awareness moments of brand names and stuff like that that we couldn't afford. I mean, Nike shoes, like you wouldn't think that that's a big deal. Like I know that you know, poverty people think it's a big deal. I couldn't afford those as a kid. Like my mom, even the cheapest ones on sale. Like, no, we can't give, we can't afford those. Mm. So I, I actually still enjoy like that brand because it's like, man, that's something I couldn't afford when I was young. Like something that simple, you know? Wow.
1: So it wasn't you know, all sunshines and rainbows to begin no. with. There was a lot of a uh, struggle and adversity even at a, a young age. So basically, so your mom's an immigrant, your dad's ex-military. What does that look like? What, like, obviously you sound like you had a lot of free time to, to do some of the things that you want. Did they empower you to kind of and do that entrepreneurial side or was there, did you kind of figure it out on your own?
2: I would say that my mom was the big dreamer. And even to this day, she was always the creative. She was the artist in the family. She's very aesthetic. She liked to paint and mm. she liked to make our clothes because we didn't have a lot of money. She would actually go buy the patterns and we'd pick out the, the cloth and she'd make our clothes all the way up until about high school. No kidding. And it wasn't cool anymore. right? <laughs> you start getting made fun of because you don't have name brands and stuff like that. So dad was more realistic. He was the disciplinarian like the physical and like verbal disciplinarian type. I mean, he's a marine sergeant. And accountability and mindset and leadership, all those things I got from my dad. Now my mom being an immigrant to the United States, you have to realize in the context of her baby boomer generation that women in Japan and even largely most parts of this world are not favored over men. And they're kind of like the second class citizens, unfortunately, and they don't even get the, the full education that men get. Mm. So at junior high level education, she was pulled out of the school system to go work in the farms with her sisters. So she valued education. So her disciplinarian was like, you're never going to miss school. You're always going to go good. You're always going to get straight A's. I mean, we hear about like the Asian mom thing and it's a real thing. It I, mean, is, dude. <laughs> I, I made straight A's I, and I, I went from kindergarten through graduation in high school and never missed a single day of school. What,
1: Mr. Perfect Attendance?
2: Perfect Attendance.
0: I heard some crazy shit that's probably not even true, but someone's like, do you know, I know why Asians wear glasses? I'm like, why? Because they're always reading a book or staring at a computer screen, and it fucks up their eyes. Initially, I'm laughing because I'm thinking it's a joke, but then I'm starting to think, is there truth to that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, they just not start not. you so early. There's like, by the time you're 18, like God damn! <laughs> I, I think it's still genetics in that case. I mean, my mom actually still has perfect vision, and so do I. Really? Yeah.
1: Okay. All so right. Jealous as I wore
2: my contacts, with I need no. to get updated.
1: <laughs>
0: so you were waiting tables during college? Right? Yeah, I
2: started working in restaurants at 15 at McDonald's. Okay. They opened a brand new McDonald's in my hometown of Friendswood, Texas, and and I was one of the first crews there, and wasn't old enough to work in the kitchen so they kind of made me I was making biscuits in the background and you know <laughs> stocking shelves and then I turned 16 I could work the front counter and start flipping burgers and I did that through high school then I worked at Olive Garden as a busser then a waiter then I be- eventually became a restaurant bartender at a steakhouse and manager of a restaurant for a few years and it was all during school but mostly the money that I used to pay for my school was going through uh, plant shutdowns because my dad had all these leads at hey they're plants are going to shut down. we got to rebuild all these pipelines and pipe racks. And you basically work seven twelves, making 10, 15 bucks an hour all summer long. And that was enough to pay for my entire year of school. So each summer I would just basically work crazy hours and that would pay for the full year of school. Wow. And then
1: you'd go to study because you also yeah. know that education is important. So you weren't slacking off. You weren't like me hitting
2: the frat house every Thursday through Sunday. I know, and then back and I class. Went to the university of Houston mechanical engineering and, even when I was in school, the University of Houston, the Cougars, were actually the national champions in football, and I didn't get to go a single game because I was waiting tables on the weekends. So, I basically just worked, and you know, like the whole twenty-four-seven hustle and grind. That was me in my college years, and I literally was only sleeping about three hours a night to go through that. Mm. I was like a zombie, and my grades reflected it. I didn't have really good grades in college. I did high school was very easy for me. Engineering school was not because yeah. when you think about it, in engineering school those are all straight A students in high school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you get there now, you're average and everything's based on a curve. So you're getting C's and barely getting B's. You're like, what the hell it's like? It's like, you feel like this kick to your nuts. Yeah. Like, oh, man, what does this be? Like the first time I ever got a C in my life was in college. And it's like, wow. I felt like my life was over. I felt like jumping over a bridge, you know?
0: <laughs> I saw an Asian meme. It was a mom staring at her, her daughter. She was actually pointing at a chalkboard and they had a, B, C, D and F. Right. And, and the mom is, pointing at the chalkboard and showing the daughter. If you get an a that's average B is bad. C is can't come
1: home. Yeah. Can't, can't, yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Can't
0: come home. Yeah. Can't come home. I forgot what D was. Dishonored F was find a new family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I was dying because right. It's it just pretty accurate. Yeah. That's,
1: that's pretty accurate. A is average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like the identity, you know, like how does that feel identity wise? Cause you know, I've, i, I remember doing really well in school and then getting that first bad grade after you go to that next level when you're not when everyone's just as smart as you yeah you know like what does that do with you identity because like you said that's not a joke you probably did feel like damn I mean, I'm, I, my
2: life's over i felt bad dude uh, looking back i mean looking back now it's like it was a small thing and not even a big thing to worry about but yeah man it's a ding to your ego a ding to your identity it's it's kind of like, like you say when you play football and like, you don't play sports anymore, that your identity kind of dies. It's like you have a morning, like you feel like there's a loss. Yeah. Right? So it's a legit thing. I mean, unfortunately nowadays, especially suicides among teens and college age kids is the highest it's ever been. And COVID had a lot to do with that. Yeah. You know, people are just not being interactive and not social and wearing masks and hiding things and just people feeling really uncomfortable in, in a social setting and loneliness, you know, creates a depression and, so, you know, I, I sit on the board of a nonprofit that deals with helping kids to work against anti-bullying online and things like that. Because I had bullies as a kid. I grew up half Japanese in a largely redneck area of Houston. So, you know, they you got to realize that when I was a kid that all the authority roles in town were World War II generation people. Mm. And they didn't like Japanese people too much. So the police, teachers, administration, like, they knew who my mom was. It's was a small town. And even though that— we were good people. They still were judgmental. And I remember going to stores with my mom and the workers would follow us around and stuff like that. You know, they just didn't trust us. And it's just odd. My mom was always good about it. She's like, hey, don't worry about them. You know, that's just how it is. And she was always upbeat. My mom was always happy. She doesn't judge anybody. She's always looked at people and saw their potential that they've had. And, you know, going about the big dream that you asked earlier, I mean, coming to America to her was like a blessing. She eventually became a citizen here and, she would say things like, "You could be the president of the United States. You can be an astronaut. I grew up around NASA, right? You can be an astronaut. You can do this." Like she was always saying, "You can do this. You can do this." Like big dreams. And my dad was more like, "Ah, whatever." You know, fall like, in line, fall yeah, in like yeah, you know that's cool and all, but you know, so it's yeah, I'm very fortunate to grow up with a mom like that and understanding that most people didn't have that encouragement or you know, because when you're a kid, you're like, "Ah, mom, come on, mom," yeah. mm-hmm. but then you look back and go, "Oh crap, that's why I am the way I am."
0: Yeah, yeah, I think people they don't remember or they don't know about the, the whole Japanese, right? Yeah. Pearl Harbor, there's that, that moment in history where after Pearl Harbor, we rounded up a shitload of the Japanese and we viewed them as the enemies. They're like, yes. oh shit, they could be a spy or they could be working yeah. for the Japanese. Yeah. So I know that was... Some real shit that you know the Japanese culture here in America dealt with, and that's just you know
1: so. these are a hundred years ago, guys. Like yeah. this isn't a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I <mean>, Nineteen forty-two, <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. we're talking generation just a little bit above you. So, like people forget that it's not that far removed.
2: Yeah, man. Anytime your your freedoms, your personal freedoms are encroached upon, that's a terrible situation. And although certain areas of our history get highlighted often like the slavery thing. Like that's something very embarrassing for the United States, but it's the fact. And it's something that we need to understand that yeah. way we don't repeat that, but nobody talks about those Japanese internment yeah. camps. I mean, literally every Japanese, and even if they were born in America, they mm-hmm, still just Japanese descendants, especially from the West coast, California, San oh, yeah. Francisco was it? terrible. So all oh, yeah. the left coast basically took anybody that was Japanese and they said, Hey, you got one suitcase, like putting you into these internment camps or basically prison camps. Yeah. And you had to leave your house and all your stuff behind and your businesses had to shut. And and then when they get out, they, they're they like, all that stuff's gone or broken in or stolen. And they just had to start over again. And, you know, literally they were like slaves in 1942. It wasn't that long ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wild. So had some adversity growing up and then you went to college, got your degree. Yeah. In that time period, were you thinking, I wanna take my degree and go do this? Or were you thinking ahead?
2: Well, the thing is I intentionally got the degree because I'm a car fanatic. So I said, hey, how do I go work on the automotive industry? And everybody's like, oh, maybe mechanical engineering. It's like, okay. I was actually average at math, but I had to get really good at math to do that. Mm -hmm. And I thought when I would graduate, I would go work in Detroit and design Camaros and Corvettes, things I loved, right? And I did some phone interviews for the big three, and I I was talking to them, and they get to the offer, and I'm like, it, like 28 grand like that's it and like I'm talking to these Houston oil and gas companies and they're like hey 40 grand so I'm like I can stay in my home city and make 40 grand and actually afford the car that I work for I can go up there and work on things and live in Detroit which I anybody listening from Detroit sorry but your city sucks like let's, let's be real for a lot of years <laughs> and, and so it was an easy choice for me to stay in Houston and work in the oil industry and and entrepreneurship and stuff like that was never really a thing for me. I mean, I, I was very fascinated with it. I was a 12-year-old kid that had a subscription to Forbes and entrepreneur magazines, and I just knew that I didn't have money, right? So the story there is my mom and I would go grocery shopping, and while she's grown, you know, pushing the cart around, I would run to the magazine rack every single time. And initially, I would just read my car magazines and comic books. But I was always broke. I couldn't ever buy the magazines, and I started looking over there on the other side of the, the shelf and there's money magazines and entrepreneur and Forbes. And I said, well, maybe if I read some of those, I can figure out how to make money. Right. And so I'm just resourceful. So I would spend time reading those. And eventually I was like, Hey mom, can I get a subscription? He's like, Oh, okay. So yeah, I was, it's it's weird to think about now, but I was like 12, 13 years old reading these business magazines, but I really would read them cover to cover. Like even the ads, like the fine print and ads, I would literally read every single word in that magazine down to the fine print, even in the ads, every page because I didn't understand financials and I didn't understand money. I didn't understand business. But I figured if I read enough that I would start to form an understanding of the definition of the words and what they mean and how things interact and why things are the way they are. And I did, I started to learn those things and I started to learn how to, to sell things and build things and you know, market things. And I was like a teenager.
1: Damn. That's crazy. Cause I mean, it's like nowadays you would be, shocked to hear some 13 year old subscribe to the Completely. wall street journal or something Completely. like that. That's like Bella being subscribed to the wall
2: street journal. Like you'd be like my, my high school football coach hired me as like their marketing guy. Cause <laughs> he's like, Hey, uh, we have this side business. We do lawn sprinklers in the summertime when we're off season. And you know, can we get some cards made and like some flyers to stick into the ground? And I designed all those. I was the yeah. artist, you know, I could draw and paint and do things with a computer. And, and so, yeah, I was doing marketing. Like Hey, yeah, I was the first e-com marketer, guys. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, this was 1989. So, you know, come back with me, OG. Yeah. Hey, Valfer, <laughs> the, re-
1: the real OG.
0: Yeah, that's that's wild. So, internet marketer making funnels in 1989.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and more more then, like 96. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then uh, you find yourself working for some of the big wigs in, in the oil business. Talk to us about that.
2: Yeah. My oil career, I started out on the manufacturer side, the supplier side and managing projects, junior level project engineer. And I remember my first projects were like $1 million. And I thought that was a lot of money. And and I was remember writing these purchase orders for $500,000. Like, and I got to sign, I got to approve this. Like, this is crazy. Like you're thinking like, cause all of our belief systems around money come from our childhood and our own reference points. So mm-hmm. I just remember thinking that that was a big money, like a million dollar project. Like, oh my god, I'm responsible for this. Like, holy shit! And then later in my career, like hundreds of millions of dollars, I'm <laughs> you know, managing two to three hundred million dollar projects, and you we always have get a lot more. daily burn rates of a million dollars. So you know, it, to me, all the processes and systems and the leadership and all the things that they actually invested into me. I've had millions of dollars of training invested into me because I was on that path of executive, and so. I don't take that for granted. I was actually the ones out there looking for, cause I'm a consumer. I want to learn things like, Hey, Hey, there's this cool course over here about leadership and org charts. Can I go take that? And the budget's this like, yeah, go, go do it. So I was very fortunate for that career to learn things and processes and project management that for me, it made small business very easy, you know? And, and when I talk to small business owners, they don't have a lot of that structure. They don't know what an org chart is. They don't understand processes or, Uh, systems that understand even just routine procedures and things like that and how to organize things. And uh, it's like, I learned all that from corporate, you know, so as as much as like entrepreneurs, we like to be like, Oh, you know, your job sucks. Like, dude, I learned things from McDonald's and I took notes like from McDonald's. I, I was looking around like, this place is very efficient. Why is it number one in the world? Like, okay, well maybe I can pay attention and not bitch about my job and I can actually do some things. And you start to look about process and organizations and, so I've always been very keen on looking at different industries and seeing what they do well and what they do poorly. And I'm wondering why they don't interact a little bit more and look, take the best practices from each and every one of those. So oil and gas, man, talk about processes above, um, processes and risk mitigation, big numbers. I mean, that's probably why I don't really flex and do things online nowadays, because like you see a lot of people are seven, eight figure business owners are like, yeah. Did $10 million this year. And they're all hyped up. Like, dude, it's like, I wrote a PO for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean
0: it's crazy. The, the billions <laughs> that's of a dollars. Fucking,
1: that's, a, that's a mic drop right there. I wrote a yeah. purchaser for ten mil.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chevron, Shell. Yeah. I mean, those are just billions and billions and billions of dollars. Man,
2: we're renting those offshore drill rigs and construction vessels. Those are a million dollars a day. That's wild. God, and we're out there for 30, 40 days. Wow. So and you know, it doesn't really get me excited to talk about like a million a day. It's like, dude, I'd, yeah, that was a purchase order. Yeah,
1: that's that's crazy. You know what's crazy? I also real quick is like, while you're saying all this, you basically have this engineering mind the entire time. You all constantly looked at how it's made, what's it, what what was, what's the pieces to to get that desired outcome, yes. and you disassemble it in your head and you reassemble it and apply it to your life. I've seen, you got that from McDonald's from what you were just saying definitely from your waiting jobs, Forbes, Forbes at 12, 12, you know what I'm saying? And then immediately into the corporate life where you realize that, yes, this is a job and I'm an employee. This may not be my end goal, but what am I going to extract from this?
2: And it's not just giving time and collecting a paycheck. Always. It's always been a learning. It's educational to me. Everything, even the clients I serve today, they're various industries, various levels of success or revenue, if you want to, whatever you want to call it. Right. But what I've learned is business is business. It goes back to those fundamentals we talked about earlier. So business is business. The principles are the same. The cash flow management, the HR processes, all these things are the same. So as a business coach, I don't have to be the industry expert in that thing because I understand business. So you're supposed to be the expert in that one specialty, that one knowledge base, that one skill set. Let's take that knowledge and go build the business side of it, right? And that's what I think a lot of times people don't understand is they – they get into business. Like a lot of times come up, people like them, Hey man, I I want to start a business. Like, you know, I want to do this, this and this, or maybe they're a good mechanic. They want to go start their own shop or, you know, they're good with photography and they want to go create their own online marketing company. And I was like, okay, cool. Like you're exceptional videographer. You're an exceptional mechanic, but what have you studied about business? Oh, nothing. You know, I just, I just know I'm really good at it. I said, okay, cool. That's about worth about 40, 50% of your success. Like whatever you come to the business front with your your specialized knowledge, that's about 40 to 50% of your success. You have to go invest equal amount of time and money or have the resources to find the right people to make your business a success. And most people don't know. They underestimate the things that they don't know. And they greatly overestimate the things that they do know. And that's why so many businesses fail. So that's where I come in. I'm like, dude, I'm glad that you're really talented at this, but you don't understand processes and systems and cash flow and accounting and Marketing and copy, and all these things that they're missing. And I had to teach them, like, this is equally important to what you're bringing to the table because they, they think it's like, oh, this little side thing I can do. You know, I'm, I'm really good at these things. Like, who cares? Like, hopefully, you're not going to be doing those very long, you know?
1: It's that a long term perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because you
0: can sell it doesn't mean you can run a business. That's right. And so I I learned firsthand four years ago when I started quest education, I was like, yeah, let's go. We can sell. And, uh, he's laughing because we've had, you know, trial and error. Right. So can't, uh, it was that easy, right? Yeah. You can't, you can't, I love how you just said about the whole underestimating and overestimating things because there's so much more to business, right? Processes and marketing and cash flow And most people are freaking doing their own books or using TurboTax. It's like, What are we doing here? So at what point, Tony, in corporate, did you get to a a point where you were thinking, I want to get out of, I want to break free from corporate. This whole, it sounds like you were thinking about becoming an executive Mm -hmm. with these different companies. So at what point did you figure out that wasn't the path that you wanted to take and, and you wanted to take a different path?
2: Yeah, I would say that I've built a few seven figure businesses as side hustles, you know, and people you know laugh about that, but it's the truth. I mean, even when I wrote the book, Side Hustle Millionaire, I didn't like the title because it seems kind of arrogant. It seems kind of pompous. And it's like, that's not who I am. But, you know, Mike Fallett, you know, he's the guy that helped me with the book. And he's like, well, look at these three words, side hustle millionaire. Like, which of these three is false? It's like, none of them. He's like, then that's you. Like, like who's going to dispute that? Like you need to own that. Like so that you need to become that. That's who you are. Like, is that true? Like, yes. Okay, cool. That's you. That's the book. And so I had to live with that. I was like, okay, that makes sense. So I had to step into my story, right? And, you know, that was the business I started in 2001. So I was 28 years old, single father at that time, and depressed and kind of just working things through a failed relationship with my son's mother. And uh, I was unemployed for six months because of an industry downturn back then in oil and nobody was hiring. I didn't have a lot of years of experience and so I was waiting tables. I was working on a mechanic shop on the weekends and I eventually got another job, like a lower paying job in engineering because that was the first place that would hire me. And so for two years I was building this online business while I was working three jobs. Yeah. And you know, looking back, it's just the only answer I had because if I didn't have money and I was in a hole, the only way I knew how to get out of the hole was like to dig myself out by working and just putting in extra work. Cause I don't understand like, scaling my time and all these things that i understand now i was just trading time for dollars is what we always think about so i needed to get a raise or pick up extra shifts or get over overtime or a third job right and so i did that and i was building this company and eventually it was cash flowing like ten thousand a month like within the first year wow you know and i was like okay cool like but i didn't quit my job see because i was also equally driven in my career so it's kind of weird like i had two separate careers I was very driven in entrepreneurship and understanding that, and the things I was learning from corporate, I could apply to the small business and leadership and things like that. So I built a seven-figure business that, and we're cash flowing about four hundred thousand a year, you know, from from a hobby that I created that literally took me less than an hour a week. And people go, "That's crazy! Like, why didn't you go full time?" It's because I built that in my absence, knowing that I had to travel and go offshore and do all these different things. So I built these online businesses with the right people in place with the processes, the systems, all the the procedures that they had to follow, had a team of 75 people doing these different things, marketing at 150 advertisers, had live events, and I did it as a side business, you know, so it can be done. And I don't like the hustle and grind like I did that my college years, like that was my life. Like I don't like to do that anymore. So when I see people bragging about how much they work and it's like, you're just not good at what you do. I hate to tell you, like, if you're if you're working 12, 16 hours a day, you're not very efficient or you're just not really good at what you do. And most people don't like to hear that because they think that they're hustling grind. It's like a badge of honor. It's like, no, you're just really not good at what you're doing. You're like, there's probably something better you could be doing that would give you a lot more happiness and freedom. And you'll be able to go do the things that you want to do and enjoy those. You know, because like the the book, Four Hour Work Week, you know, Tim Ferriss, that book came out two years after I sold that company for a couple million and people were like making fun of the title, like four hour work, like this guy's full of shit, you know, like nobody was like four hours. Come on. This guy is total. totally like, dude, I did it. I made millions working an hour a week. So Tim Ferriss is working too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Write a new book, Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Come on, bro. four hour
1: work month. <laughs> yeah,
2: and, and it, it's, it's easy to, it's, Looking back on these things, yeah, it takes a lot of work to get those things going, obviously. But you can create in any business a scale back on your time and a scale increase on your profits. Most people, unfortunately, just get trapped in that job mentality. They show up and they, they just work their 12 hours a day and they do it. And they. somebody wants to you know, exit the company and they go, oh, let's just sell the business. And they realize it's not valued very much because they're embedded in the company. It's too built around them. And it's kind of heartbreaking. So many businesses like a, only about 3% of companies ever get sold. And it's not because 97% of companies aren't for sale. It's because 97% of companies aren't worth anything to a buyer.
0: Yeah. That's, that's a, a hard thing for a lot of businesses to hear. Right. Cause I think most businesses think that their business is worth a lot more.
2: Yes. It actually is. It's like real estate. My daddy built this house. It's so sentimental. It's so awesome. And, it's got to be worth 2.5 million like it's yeah it's worth 250 grand. <laughs> <laughs> Drop a zero. <laughs> Drop a zero. But so
0: when you sold the business for a couple million were you still employed in yeah. the in the gas industry? Yeah, I
2: stayed employed. I sold that company. Full exit was 2009 because there was a transition phase and earnouts and things like that. 2009. And I didn't leave corporate until 2 2015. Wow.
0: Wow. When you got the payday, did you yeah. do anything special? Did you celebrate?
2: Uh, I bought a couple of cars and, and things like that. We upgraded the house, you know, it was, it was perfect timing. Cause I sold actually in the big lump sum was 2007 and we all know what happened in 2008, 2009. Yeah. So construction costs really low for custom homes. We bought a couple acres and built a, a custom home and I have a shop out back with 2,400 square foot shop and all that. And Sick. so we were like literally the only people building in the neighborhood. We were the youngest people in the neighborhood too. It was acreage community and, and they were, i say, Hey, I want to upgrade this. They're like, yes, sir. Or like they, they would just do it at a, cause they had, I was keeping them busy. Yeah. And but, this
0: is the same house you're in now, right? Yeah. Same yeah house. Beautiful home. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And at this time, were you with Lisa, your, yeah. your wife? Okay. Yeah. All right. Talk to us about that transition because guys, one thing I, I really love about Tony and I think I was able to connect with them here is, you know, Tony had a kid at a young age. I had a kid at, you know, 18, 19 years old. Didn't make it work with the mom. Uh, didn't make it work with uh, Bella's mom. And then same thing with you. So Talk to us about some of those learning experiences and having a kid at a young age and, and you know, having two different homes and then going on and finding Lisa, you've been married to for many years and yeah. you guys are doing awesome. So talk to us about that.
2: Yeah. My son's 22 now, Lisa and I've been together since he was one. So yeah, a little over 20 years now. And it was tough, dude. I, I think that so many people stay in unhappy relationships and, and my son's mother and I tried to make it work. We were never really meant to be together. We were partying together, and things happened. You know, basically, she had her wisdom teeth pulled, and when you have the antibiotics, that neutralizes birth control. We didn't know this. Get the fuck out! A lot of here. people don't still don't know this.
0: So you weren't planning on having we it weren't a had, kid? Weren't,
2: no. But like she you, she got pregnant the week after she had her wisdom teeth removed because the antibiotics.
0: When she told you, Tony, I'm pregnant. What was your action? Would you say? Would you do?
2: I said, Hey, it's up to you. You know, it's like, I'll be here no matter what. And so we moved in together and I still had an apartment lease. I couldn't break. So, you know, we moved in together for the six months while she was pregnant the last six months. And then about the first six months of his, after he was born, you know, it was just, it was just chaos. You I knew mean, it was just, it was just never a, a positive relationship and, i try to make it work. i try to do the right thing. I was always worried about the judgment because you, you don't want to be called a deadbeat dad and things like this, the labels societies create for you. And I didn't want to upset my parents. I thought that they would, like, feel disappointed if I left or, you know, things like that. So a lot of pressure when you're going in that relationship, even though you know it's a dead-end type relationship and it's just toxic because she was very verbally abusive and she was, a, like, a mean drunk. Like, anytime she would drink, she'd just be mean, you know, and I don't I didn't grow up in a household like that. It was very respectful household and so I just it was the hardest decision I had to make in my life at that point it, it was like man this isn't working and she wouldn't make fun of the stuff I was working on like I was teaching myself how to build websites and say yeah, I want to build this thing and, you know have a community for car guys and you know they can hang out and talk about cars and she'd be like that's stupid like guys talking about cars on the internet that's stupid what a waste of time Like I, that made me a multimillionaire, like legit like <laughs> the dream she was pissing on so she never supported any of the things i was doing and nothing was ever good enough so i just said dude i can't take this i was in a depressive cycle for about a year and i just remember going through the motions and just kind of waking up in the parking lot at work like not remembering how i drove there or anything like that and just kind of just going through these motions and just feeling like my life was largely out of control because up until that point I mean, i would only been out of school a couple of years things were going well i mean i was enjoying the nightlife and being a DJ at a bar downtown and doing things and just I thought the life was on the upward trajectory. Then that came around and I said, like, okay, it's a momentary setback. But and then I'm in a relationship with a woman that I'm not in love with. Like this is tough, man. And I was like, then I started feeling like my life was out of control at that point. And you know, leaving was the best thing I ever did. And, and the things that all the judgment you fear, it all comes back to the character and how you react after the fact of something that's occurred. Right. So. I remember we had an argument, and she was going to go visit her parents for a week. And she said, "Hey, when I get back, you better be the fuck out." And I said, "Okay." And then her dad was there, and, and he said, "I understand." He goes, "He goes, I raised her." He goes, "I know, what I know." He goes, and I said, "Sergio, I said, with all respect, I won't be here when you guys get back." And he's like, "I understand." He goes, "I hate that, you know, it's going to be like this, but I understand." But I said, "I will always be there for my son." And I always was, I was the weekend dad and things like that for his whole life. And, you know, but I felt like I lost so much pressure off of my shoulders. I remember just driving to the apartment to go find a new apartment when I left. I just remember feeling so much relief and I was commuting so far because I was at that crappy job that I needed. And basically I got an apartment as close as I could that was cheap and, and I called my parents next. I said, Hey, I, you know, she and I were split up. I left and my mom, like the, one that is happier to see everybody she's like thank god <laughs> she goes says a lot. she's like we never wanted to say anything to influence your relationship but we knew that it just wasn't good and while honorable trying to do the right thing it was just never meant to be and just, she like we we could see that she was taking away our son like I wasn't the same person anymore I was just out of it and so i realized like man like all the things i feared i could have shortcut like six months or 12 months by just not doing that. And I just, it's not worried about the child support. That's just a part of life. You know, whether you're got child support or you're raising kids, it's going to cost you the same amount of money no matter what. So I just happily paid it. You know,
0: did you guys fight over custody over the years?
2: <clears throat> no, I, I remember wanting custody. Mainly my biggest fear was like, who is she going to shack up with that be a stepdad to my son? Like yeah. what kind of influence is he going to have? And, I didn't know if I trusted her judgment. So like, those are some big fears. Like as long as I'm still in this house, I have some impact, right. Some influence, but I realized like you know, I can still be a, a dad that has the, the kid on the weekends and influence them and still show up and do things. And he's learned a whole lot from me, you know, watching me. And it's uh so if you're in a relationship, you're listening to this, you're in a bad relationship. It's not worth your unhappiness. Yeah. Cause our life here is so short and I'm not saying to go hook up with somebody else, but sometimes it's just better to be alone. I was single for about a year and a half and I just, I didn't want to be in another relationship. I was really focused on working and I started that company and I was really focused on that. My company and the the businesses I started was like my escape.
0: Yeah. That that was your new side piece.
2: It It was something I could do when I got home from work and I could focus on that. I didn't, didn't require me going out to the bars and doing stupid shit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The only bar that you go to now is the gym. That's right. Squat bar. That's right. (laughs) Deadlift bar, baby. So when you decided to make the pivot and, and you left corporate in 2015, why 2015? You got a nice payout, exited for a couple million in 2009. Why didn't you leave in 2013, 2012? Why 2015?
2: 2015, two different things happened to me. One, there was an oil downturn and that started in late 2014. And so there was these waves of layoffs going through the industry. And the only reason I was employed that particular year is because we had one more year to complete this project. I was working out of Africa. And so they said, hey, this one's gonna hit first oil, it's gonna produce, like we need to keep this team on to finish that project, that way they can make money, right? So we knew we were gonna get laid off. We didn't know exactly what day, but we just knew, hey, when we got done with this project, it was kind of done for the team. and I was at that point now that I was starting to have to lay off people and it wasn't because they were low performers. It was because of financial reasons. Right. And that's tough because I remember I had these two project accountants and they shared an office. they have both been what we call lifers. They've been there 30 plus years, Mm -hmm. same pay scale range, exceptional employees. One of them was already at full retirement points. She'd been there a little longer. Right. So she could have took her early retirement package and just, did well the other one had six months to go and so they they're friends they're, they shared an office and they said hey uh, I'm willing to go because I'm in full retirement I want her to stay and I was like that's that's a good idea because we need a project accountant to finish out the books even after the project's done like she'll be here another eight months to do a year so I submitted that paperwork in and it came back that they were going to lay off the one that wasn't at full retirement yet and I said, oh, okay, this has got to be a mistake because I submitted, you know, the other way. And I went back upstairs and said, hey, uh, she's like six months from full point. She's been here a her whole career. And the other one can go. because She's like retired package, right? And they're like, no, we can't do that. Wow. So they basically cut this poor lady's knees off six months from the finish line. God. And I had to be the one to deliver. There's a lot of tears and hugs in that moment, you know, but that's rough when you start to see that these companies really don't give a shit about you. Like they, they put the carrot out in front of you and you start to see the effects of ageism as I've experienced that myself. And the other part about being a successful employee is that they will actually, when layoffs come around, whatever industry, in, if you're a successful, they perceive you as successful that you can take care of yourself. They actually will lay you off sooner because they feel like, Oh, well, you know, Tony's got things figured out. He doesn't need this job. And, you know he can get cut off. It's like, dude, I was making like two hundred fifty thousand, three hundred thousand a year. Like, it's hard to replace a job income that level. Yeah, you know, there's very few roles at that level. So, I found that you know you had to be a good performer no matter what, and I was. But I started to see the effects of ages. I'm like, hey if we lay Tony off and we put someone in there who's 15 years younger that can do half of what he does for a lot less price, can we just keep that seat warm until the industry fires back up and then we'll call the boys back in, right? That's the game that they play here in the United States. And so I started to see the mistreatment of people at that level. And I was having to be the one that delivered the bad news and make the calls. I said, man, I just realized that as I get closer to executive level, cause I was right below VP levels. like if I start getting to these levels, it just becomes worse Yeah. because you're less attached and emotional attachment to the people. You don't worry about the performance. It all goes back to numbers. As I said, I don't treat people like that. I never have. It's just, it's a character thing. It's a, it's against my core values. So I realized like, Hey, when this is over, like I don't want to be in this industry anymore. And you know, people are like, Oh man, that's a lot of money to walk away from. And, You know, what are you going to do? You have a degree. Like, you're not going to use it. It's like, no, I'm not going to use it. You know, so that was the one thing, right? The other thing was a couple months later, I was at the drag strip, and I was racing cars. And this shop had a Dodge Viper just like the ones I drive. And and basically, they they were trying to set a record in it, and the driver couldn't launch it very well. He was very inexperienced with a manual. And they knew I can drive. I've set a lot of records in, in drag racing and road course. And so... They said, Hey man, we got one more shot at this track's about to close. We're going to put a brand new set of slicks on here. You know, you mind driving? And I was like, dude, yeah. Cause it's a little slower than what I have. Right. It's a, you know, that one was a thousand horsepower. I got one that's 1300 horsepower. It's <laughs> a big difference. And, yeah. and so I said, yeah, dude, I'll get that number for you. And everything was going good. The past, like it was a great launch. Everything was going good. And about the top of third gear, the car started to kind of just get out of line a little bit. And I was like, man, what's going on with this? Like better not feel right but it, it straightened out momentarily. I could see the finish line. I mean, you're at 120 miles per hour. It's so you see like, it's gonna be a good number. And then the car goes like hard right again, it starts grazing the wall. And I'm like, what the hell happened there? So I think in the worst is over. So I just basically get on the brakes. And as I touch the brakes and come off the wall, the car goes really hard left and I'm in the right lane. So it's going looking at Jersey barriers and a two door sports car that's gonna impact the side that I'm on that 120 miles per hour. I, I really thought I was gonna die in that moment and you know it's as the car turned and I was still steering straight and I realized it was out of my control I remember saying to myself in that moment well here I go and the weirdest thing that I had experienced in that moment is I wasn't fearful I was fearful when the car started to get out of line but when I realized it was beyond my control and I said well here I go I was not fearful anymore and I actually felt an overwhelming sense of peacefulness in that moment it's really absurd because I'm I'm spiritual, but I don't consider myself like Bible bump, you know, Christian. I don't go to church. I don't study the Bible like religiously. I just, I just felt really peaceful in that moment. And you know, of course impact occurs and cars destroy and there's wheels flying off the car and all this stuff. And, and I had zero injuries. You know, I had a helmet on and a seatbelt belt. that's it. It wasn't a race car. It was just a fast street car. And the whole time the car sliding, I didn't know if I was injured and, and basically, I just I just knew that I had to get out of the car because most of the people that die aren't from impact; it's from the fire because all the fluids are spilling out of the car. And, and I just remember like sliding and it's like get I got to get out. I got you know stay awake, stay awake, stay awake because all I could think about. And I was a little bit scared in that moment, but not approaching the wall when I thought like here I go. And dude, I was it was weird, dude, because I was putting the back of the ambulance and I'm looking at the wreckage. It's like right there in front of me, and I'm just looking at it. And this car is totally destroyed. Series of questions comes through your mind. Like, what if I would have died right there? And then you think, well, if I would have died, how would people remember me? And anytime somebody asks that question, it's easiest to look at people that you've known, maybe in your circles that have died. How, how did they get remembered, right? How do other people that I know that died recently or in the last few years, how do they get remembered? Okay, cool. Like, so it's really easy to come up with a, an answer, too, and it may not be what suits you. But I would have been remembered as nice, rich guy, cool cars gone too soon. I was like, is that good enough? Nice, rich guy, cool cars gone too soon? And no, that does not sit well with me. That's very superficial. One, I think that that's, it's okay to aspire to do that, like it's positive, right? But it's superficial and it's shallow because I knew that as a competitor, as things that I've always wanted to be the best at. That wasn't good enough because it was missing the legacy phase. It was missing the give back. It was missing what I should be doing. Yeah, I built wealth and I had cool shit and I'm nice, but is that enough? Like, no, it's not because I knew I had more capability. So that happened in late 2015. And after that, I was like, dude, I felt like I was going to die in that moment. Like, I need to start living and start doing things. And it was tough, dude. It was really tough because I didn't have confidence in front of a camera and I didn't I had stage fright. I didn't like videos, like all that stuff. But I realized that my message was more important than my fear. And that I had to go do the hard work to be able to do what I do now.
0: Man, I don't think I've heard the car story in that in that form before. I remember reading about it on Facebook, but to hear it is it hits completely different. Powerful. Yeah. Dang. So when this happens, immediately do you think I need to give back to people in the form of coaching? Is that okay. where the coaching...
2: No, I didn't really understand. I just knew I wanted to make impact. I wanted to build legacy, and I was in my early forties at that time. And I didn't start three sixty five driven until two thousand seventeen. So there was a two year window that I didn't work. I took contractor gigs here and there. I was just kind of wondering what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, you know, and. Should I create a nonprofit? Should I start a school? Like all these things that are very honorable. But the thing is that we are all here for different reasons, for different levels of impact. And when you start to understand that each and every one of us has a specialty that is going to impact this world, you may be a comedian and that may be the way you impact this world by making people laugh, right? Like there's different things that we all have. And so I think about like, what are the things that people keep asking me for advice on? One of the things I have a lot of energy around, it's always been cars and business. Like those are the only two things that really just keep coming back in my life. Like people were asking me how to start businesses and I've helped 12 of my former employees become multimillionaires, like started seven and eight figure businesses. Like they were employees of mine and they were like, dude, you should be teaching this stuff. Like it's working. Look at all this stuff. Like, cool. I mean, I'm proud of you. Dude's awesome. But I led a very secret private life based on my own insecurities and ego that I don't want to put that out there because I don't need that. I have money and, you know, I got a job, I got business, I got family, like all these convenient excuses that everybody has, right? The real reason I wasn't doing it is because I was uncomfortable. I, I didn't want to put myself out there. I was very good at being an MVP behind a logo and being like, the, you know, the right-hand man and success for a lot of people. But being public about it, that's scary, man. Doing videos, like crazy, like podcasts, like speaking from stage, like crazy. No, no thanks. Right. Didn't need to do that. But after the accident, I was, I was like, man, I need to help people with business. That's the thing I have a lot of passion for. I can talk about business all day long and I love it. I love meeting entrepreneurs. And so I said, okay, what do I need to do to make that message happen? And that's when I wrote the book late 2017, came out in May of 2018. That thing blew up, sold a thousand copies the first week went to number one on Amazon in the small business category. And you know, it's just it really changed my life. The podcast came later in 2018, you know, after the the success of the book. I hired a speaking coach. I joined Toastmasters. I did the reps. I did videos every single day for you know, over a year. I did a video every single day, just as my reps, because I wasn't getting stages. So the only thing I can learn from my speaking coach and my Toastmasters class was do it on video. It's, just, it's public speaking. You should, your, your audience is virtual, so I just practiced the tactics, and so. That's how I evolved, and the thing is I always like to lead by example, and you knew me back then. I basically showed people, hey, I'm just beginning at this, and I know I'm going to suck, and I'm okay with that. But I'm going to commit to doing the work, and I'm going to show up every single day and be very consistent, and you're going to see progress, hopefully, that I'm improving. And really, within six months, I was winning public speaking competitions. Wow, Six months because I would study the best speakers, the guys like Ed Milet, who became a mentor. I would study the best speakers and the tactics and learn the strategies and understand like all the things that they were doing, the psychological levels, the storytelling. And I would practice on these videos. And I got better and better, so I became confident in that subject enough to win competition. So you can do anything that you put your mind to if you just put the work in.
0: Yeah, so I want to talk about imposter syndrome, because we've all experienced it. And listening to you, you had it even at a point in your life that you were pretty damn successful. Here you are selling businesses, exiting for millions, successful corporate career. And, you know, sounds like you were, you know, already married to Lisa for a number of years. So happy relationship. And here you are writing this book and you're not comfortable with the title of it, right? Yeah. Side hustle millionaire. And it took someone else to own it. And don't be a little bitch like you used to tell me right so someone that has is is dealing with imposter syndrome that is is scared to step into their story right that has that doubt like what are some things that that person can work on to to change that belief system
2: i would say regarding imposter syndrome first of all that's a normal human emotion right it's a self-worth question we all have that everyone even at the highest levels of success has that and Unless you're a sociopath, you probably don't have that, right? So that's a good thing to have. It's yeah. awareness, right? How you react to the awareness is what's going to matter, Like right? It's good to address that it exists and I feel that it's an emotion, it's human, but what am I going to do about it? I hate to say it. Most people just go the other way. Like if, if you felt a a fear of public speaking and some point you stood up and you said something and you felt that fear. Most people be like, Oh fuck that. I'm just never going to put myself in that situation again. I'm never going to raise my hand. I'm not going to sit near the stage. I just avoid that scenario altogether. I just discomfort. Right. Where someone who's like an adrenaline junkie, like me, who like thrives on fear and doing crazy shit. I said, Hey, that's a new fear. What what can I do to get past that fear? Like, is there some lessons I can take? Is someone can teach me this? Like I've, I get really interested with fears and things that I have like these uncomfortable feelings around. So I, I like to pick at them and figure out how to get past that. And that's why I'm wired differently. And I can encourage other people to do that. But I think the imposter syndrome itself, there's different layers and different levels of that. For me, it was, it was just a, it's insecurities around putting yourself out there. I've always been like the, the leader of my friend circles, even as a kid, but I always felt weird around people I would just meet, like stranger. I was like, I was more shy and reserved and just watching things versus like being the, the center of attention. And, you know, around like how we, people worry about how they look and things like that. I mean, you guys are sitting here. you can see like my face is discolored. I have ventiligo where I have pigment issues, where like I have white spots like all over my hands. And like I've always had this since I was like 12 years old. So I always got around people that when I was growing up, they'd be like, what's wrong with you? Like, why do you have these spots? You know, like what's wrong with you? Like, so you imagine like growing up and people are like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And like, you start to feel like, man, man, there's something wrong with me. Right. And so everybody has their own insecurities. I mean, my dad thought his ears were too big and people think they're fat or like, whatever. Like we're always hypercritical of ourselves way more than other people are of ourselves. And so, I just avoided the cameras and I didn't want to be at the center stage. And I knew that I would like to do that. Like, like I felt the desire, like, man, that'd be so cool. Like to be elite guitarist and spotlight. That could be super awesome. I was like, Oh hell no. That that's, that's not me. See? So I think there's a lot of times people feel they could do more, but they're not. And it's because of fears and an imposter syndrome. Now here's the flip to that. If you're, if you're a dirt bag or you have bad intentions, you should feel imposter syndrome. That's really because you're an imposter at that point. Like, you're not – it's not syndrome. Like, you're an imposter. So if you go out on the internet and you're fake flexing and you're, you're acting like a baller and all this shit, like you're making this false front or you're buying fake followers and doing crazy stupid shit, and, and you think that if you feel imposter, it's because you're an imposter. Like, there, there's a difference, yeah. and there's a lot of that going on. But your foo. Guru, yeah, <laughs>
1: the fake ass gurus. I'm actually glad that you brought this up because, as you've been telling the stories, I, I kind of like picked up that you're almost like in a sense where like you overread and over and dive so deep into it because that's what makes you feel comfortable. I feel like you, I feel like you find a sense of comfort in knowing. And for you to get to know something, you got to fully dive into it and really know it, and then you speak intelligently. Then the confidence comes in. Now you can. Now you're, you're Tony again, but it almost seems like before you get to that point, you know, you're, I'm I'm not putting myself out there until I actually know this shit. And then that's where that obsessive comes in and you dive fully into it before you step out and present it.
2: Am I kind of picking up on the right? Yeah. You you nailed it right there. And. If you guys need evidence of that Daniel's probably seen many, many examples of this, but me debating people on my Facebook page. Oh,
0: go follow him on Facebook. One, <laughs> go, one, go grab his book. It's a really, really short, simple, but just full of tactical information that can help every single business owner. We'll put the link to Tony's book in the show notes, but I love when you put these one-liners, like just a bold statement in on Facebook. And then just everyone's just arguing in the comments and he's just Tony's just scoring all the points in the algorithm and the outreach and whatnot. So I love it.
2: Yeah, it's I don't. Here's the awareness thing. OK, awareness to me is something that we gain with age. It's wisdom. Right? It's it's awareness. It's that moment of milliseconds between the stimulus and a reaction. Most people like let's take the example of one very common like road rage. That's a reaction. It's, it's lack of awareness is a lack of self-control. Like a lot of times people get angry and they have a temper and they think that that's a show of strength. Like, ah, they're like angry or yelling at people. It's actually a show of weakness to people that actually have self-control. And that's something I actually learned in martial arts as a kid where I joined martial arts because I wanted to kick people's ass and like be able to fight back on my bullies and be a badass, right? Karate kid vibes. But then they, like the first month you're just getting tossed. Like you don't even learn how to get straight. Like you're just the tossing dummy. And it's kind of frustrating. Like, you're just here to get tossed. you got to learn how to fall. Like, we're not teaching you how to strike for a while. You're just going to be the tackling dummy. And so after a week of that, you just realize, okay, I'm just going to play along. You know, I'm I'm not going to be mad about it. And what they're doing is they're teaching you calm awareness where you're looking for something that's going to trigger you or intensify or something that's trying to set you off where that's words or an action. But you gain that moment of awareness, go, okay, what's the proper response? Not reaction, but response. There's a difference between – reaction and a response people with low self-control low awareness low eq emotional quotient react they react to everything in life they don't respond to everything in life and so when i create something like a polarizing topic or i go into a debate mode you better bet your ass i've done a lot of research before i even make that post because i love taking on the headline regurgitators that don't read past the headlines have not done the actual research And I can just bury them in facts and data and no emotion. And I'm very polite and respectful about it. But I'll find that most of the people that come at me with their headline regurgitating and an emotional response or reaction, they usually end up deleting their own replies after they get buried. buried. And so (laughs) don't debate me on topics. Understanding I'm not just posting things out there just to post things. I actually read things. And that's another thing is I don't jump in on the hottest topic that you see people jump in on a daily topic, because I want to make sure I know what's going on behind the scenes and form the best opinion that I can with the data. And then I'll present it and have a debate on it. We could just call
0: this podcast. Know your shit. Know (laughs) your your shit. Know your shit. You're in business, plumbing business. Know your shit. Know your numbers. How you getting leads? What's your processes? If you're going to be a coach, what are you coaching them on? Just know your shit.
2: Yeah. Ask and if you don't know it, ask the people that you do that do know it.
0: And that's where where coaching comes in, right? So talk to the listeners about three sixty-five driven.
2: So three sixty five driven is the entrepreneurship society that I created back in two thousand seventeen. And you know, our group's about four thousand members at this time. And you know, the show's two hundred sixty six something episodes deep and we do live events now. We started back in twenty twenty and the events has been really special to me is because in 2020, the world was shutting down and you see all these influencer furus. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> they were, they're canceling their events. I mean, they're like, Oh, you know, COVID's really scary. And they're just canceling their events. They're supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to be small business advocates. They're supposed to be defending the people that are getting shut down for being non-essential in this bullshit. So I said, you know what? People need someone to step up. So I actually had my very first event in late in 2020. I was like, screw this. Everybody else is closing their events. And I actually named it Advance. I said, while everybody else is retreating, we advance. Oh yeah. And so it's the three sixty five driven advance events. And what I also realized is that so many business owners never take vacations. And so why not have a business meeting where we actually go do exploration or outdoor activities? Like we've you know, we had our first event in Zion National Park in Utah and then we've done Montana, white you know, whitewater rafted there. We rented out a racing school in Arizona and we did a day of full performance driving school. And then we just finished up one in Cancun and area and just did one in Mexico. So we had four live events and these are usually 40 to 50 people. We like to keep it small. And the speakers I bring in are usually former guests of my show, but also we want to make sure that they're actually going to hang out and spend the the three to four days with the people because it's not as much value when you just see somebody giving their pitch on a stage as much. I love to speak on a stage. Like, that's cool but hanging out with someone for three to four days and actually having meals like three meals a day and like meeting them and understanding them and having some rapport and dude the people that go to our events leave as like lifelong friends it's like each of our four events we've had each of those is almost like its own family Mm. and it's cool to see them joint venturing and interacting and cross promoting and doing things together as a family and they support each other on their social media and you don't get that just going to a thousand person event and high-fiving people and go, Hey, cool to see you again. And bro hug. And it's just not the same as like doing something like whitewater rafting or hiking or you know things that we get them out. Because I also understand that most of these events, I cannot stand sitting in a conference room for two to three days. Like oh, kill me, dude, like six hours of max days, like for speaking. Otherwise it's fire hose syndrome. Yeah. It's too much shit, too many notes. Like you just start to feel like dull by the end of the day. Mm-hmm dude, I don't like those marathon events. And so I looked at all the things that I dislike about live events and said, well, why does it have to be that way? It doesn't. It's like, we can do one day, six hours, six speakers. And then the rest of it is all socializing and doing things like cool things. And so it's worked out really well. And uh, that's one of the main things we really enjoy. My wife and I, she loves to travel. She's a former event coordinator. And like, this is like her thing. She loves this. Like she loves planning events. And I'm like, cool. Like, I'll get the money and I'll get the people Just make it cool. Yeah.
0: She's done a a great job of that. And obviously you've built a few communities over the years. So, you know, you've done a phenomenal job with, with 365. It's been really cool seeing you grow that. What's the the link, the the website where people can learn more about
2: 365. Easy. 365driven.com.
0: Cool. And they can find your podcast, 365 Everything. Driven, your social media links, all that. Everything. Okay, guys. So that's 365, just like the numbers, 365driven.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Go check out Tony. At the very least, go check out his Facebook because, again, he, the man is consistent. <laughs> the man is consistent. I mean, he's posting consistently and just thought provoking topics and sharing a ton of nuggets. And uh, go check out his, uh, his website. His podcast is really, really solid. How many, how many episodes? are you into that uh, podcast 266 now and four talk, years four years and by there's the time this
1: drops, it'll be the four-year anniversary. Yeah. So make sure you check out his four year anniversary episode, too. Yeah,
0: scroll back. Uh you can skip my episode with him.
1: <laughs> Anything after <laughs> I'm, six. I'm episode guys. number six, but
0: now nah, there's definitely some goodies, you know, if you if you scroll back as well. So, guys, as always, we appreciate your time. You could be listening to a bunch of other podcasts, but instead you gave us your time, and, and Keaton and I do not take that for granted. So, this is how we give you guys value, bringing badass people like Tony, where you guys can have a shift of, of perspective, get some valuable information so share this episode with a friend a family member go follow tony you're not going to regret it and tony thank you for being gracious with your time and uh, i've been really looking forward to having Thanks you for the in the yoda in wisdom
2: yeah man it's good to connect again and hang out in vegas it's been a couple of years we used to come here every year but it's good to see you guys honored to be in the show
0: cool man cool well, again thank you and winners thank you guys for your time and we will catch you guys next week peace